This is recording number 10884 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, September 19, 2010. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, When God is in the House. Second Chronicles chapter 5. This building that we are in is not, it's not the church. And that's not just because it's a, it's a transformed warehouse. Um, it's because a church is not a building. The Bible, the New Testament, never, ever refers to a building as a church. The church is people, the people of God, the people who have become followers of God, lovers of God, through Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. We are the church. So I don't want to get into some sort of semantical tug of war here about whether it's appropriate to say, hey, I'll meet you at the church. But when I, as we begin this a brief study this morning. Let's just start with that um, common understanding. And when we talk about the church, even though we celebrate being in this facility and as we have already, all the work that's gone into it and, and all of that, this is not a church. It's a church building, a place where the church gathers. Jesus in... And you can read about this in Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21. Jesus, just prior to his crucifixion, came into the city of Jerusalem and went to the temple. The place where those who loved God, the people of God, gathered for worship. The place was called the temple in those days, the temple in Jerusalem. It was a grand, grand place. Much, much finer than this, and, and even though we are all just stoked about this place, the temple in Jerusalem was, was a grand sight to see, and the, the programs that were carried out there were of the finest quality and, uh, you know, yeah, just everything you can imagine. Jesus went there and did some damage. He walked in and he found such corruption in the place. It was, most of you have probably heard the story before, but I'll just briefly Recount that Jesus went in and he found that what had been originally established as a help for people who were pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem from various parts of the world to worship God at the temple, rather than drag their you know uh, their goat or their sheep or their doves or whatever it was their sacrificial animal to the temple from wherever they were coming from, they could come there and buy a sacrificial. Animal. So it was an, this process was originally established as a help to people. So rather than drag this, this animal with you, you could come to the temple and buy one. Well, the problem was that uh, with, with everything that people touched, it became very corrupt. And you had people there set up in the temple selling sacrificial animals. They would sell you, uh, you know, a sheep. You'd go to the priest. And then the priest had to inspect the sheep to make sure there was no blemishes, right? Because then you, you can't sacrifice 
uh, you know, a sheep that's less than a lamb that's less, less than perfect. And so they would come to the priest. And the priest now, because the temple has a stake in the revenue being generated by these guys selling the sacrificial animals, he has a little bit of uh, conflict of interest now. And it's much easier for him to find fault in that sheep and uh, send you back to, uh, the, the, uh, to buy another one because they're getting a kickback from that. Then the other thing that was going on in the temple where they were changing people's money. If you were from another part of the world, you had uh, currency from that, that place and you would bring it to the temple and you would want to contribute. You'd want to give of your, uh, of your substance to the, to the work there at the, at the temple, but they needed for you to go through a monetary exchange so that you could get the coin of the temple. Problem is, just like today, people who were exchanging money, they skim off a bit of it, and that's how they make their living, and the temple was getting a kickback on that too. And so it was very corrupt, and Jesus came in and made a mess of the place, overturned the tables of the money changers, set all these uh, animals free. Can you imagine the chaos in this place? And so the priests are just ticked off. The scribes and the Pharisees, those who manage this place, they are just livid with Jesus. And Jesus says this. He says, you have made my house. He's quoting now from the Old Testament. You have made my house a den of thieves. He said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. What did he mean by that? He said, my house, the place where my people gather to be with me, is supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where people meet God. Prayer is a communion, a conversation between God and people. My house is supposed to be a place, not where just fine programs happen, not just where people ooh and awe over the glory of the splendor of the building, but where people meet God. And you've made it a den or a closed system, that's what a den is, a closed system of thieves. You're robbing my people of my presence. Now keep that in mind as we, as we uh, roll back to the day when that temple was first dedicated. And we're here on a dedication Sunday. We're dedicating a, another facility to, as a place, it's our desire, a place where people, the church, meet God. And so let's go back with the things in mind about what Jesus said a church or a, a, a house of worship should be as we look at what happened on that day when that temple was first dedicated long before uh, the time when Jesus cleansed it. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. And we're going to be talking today about when God is in the house. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers, and by the way, I should set the stage. I'm sorry about that. This is, they're having a grand dedication ceremony. And they've gone through a lot of the, of the program already, a lot of pomp and circumstance, everybody dressed to the nines. It's a big, big deal. We're coming in on the tail end of the, the initial 
part of the program. There's more scheduled to follow, and it's just moving along right on schedule. And we're, we're stepping into the middle of that scene. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Something like what we were doing earlier when we were singing along with the worship team honoring God. That people lifted their voices and they were saying, He is good. His mercy endures forever. It says, when that happened, something unexpected took place. That the house, the house of the Lord. This is where, right here at this moment, this is where transformation takes place. And a building of brick and stone and gold and timber becomes not just a house, but the house of the Lord. It was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. So God showed up. God showed up. And the press, the weight, the substance of his presence was described as glory. That's the, the Bible's word for the, the, the divine word for beauty, God's beauty. You know, the, the, the author of the book of Second Chronicles is trying to give us a sense of what was happening. And, and that's hard. you can imagine it was hard to do. But it was like they could see the beauty of God and it had weight, it had substance to it. It, it pressed in on them in such a way that the program could not continue. What was scheduled, what was in process could not continue because God was in the house. And when God is present, when God is in the house, nothing else matters. Nothing. Now, I don't know if you believe this story or not. I, I do, but it's your business whether you do or not. The reason I believe it is, first of all, because I've come to find out over, over many long years, that what I have encountered in the scriptures have sh has shown to be again and again and again and again, without exception, true in my life. But I also believe that this happened because I've experienced it. Oh, probably not to the same degree or magnitude, but I know what it's like. I have led thousands, literally thousands of church gatherings. And certainly not every time. But on certain occasions, I know what it's like to have the press of God. You know, it just it feels like he, you know, the Bible says he never leaves us for, or forsakes us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. The Bible says that when we gather in his name, we have his promise. He's there in our midst. It says that when we worship him, he's enthroned on those praises. So we have those ongoing promises that just abide with us. But there are those times when it seems like God, for whatever reasons, and they're, you know, God can do whatever he wants, by the way. You know, so, so for his reasons and purposes, he kind of just presses in and says, I'm here. And listen, when you're in charge of the service at that point, the best thing you can do, take it from me, I've learned the hard way, sit down. <laughs> Don't try to just carry on. I've experienced that. So to me, this is not just some wild, weird thing that, you know, happened long ago that none of us can relate to. I, I, I know what this is like, and some of you do too. 
I want to spend the last few minutes that we have, and I promise not to keep you too long. We'll go, we're normally out of here at 11. It's about 5 till, just so you know. Of course, all of you know exactly what time it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're normally out of here at 11. I'll probably keep you a little bit past that, but not long. For the last few minutes that we have together, I want to talk about what it is, when, what it's like when God is in the house and the program that's underway in your life is interrupted. And why? Why would God do that? Very, very important reasons. God is so great and so vast, so marvelous, so beyond comprehension that when he is present, there's really no room for anything else. And some of us have come into today, come into this place today, with another program in motion. Fear. There's several I'll mention, but fear is at the top of my list. We live in a day when things are not going well. You notice that? And clearly the thing that stands out the most is the economic uh, realities that we're all dealing with in this season. And you know what, dear ones? It's not likely to get better. I'm no economist, I'm, 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 not, I'm no specialist or, or, you know, in anything. But, you know, it's hard to see much change on the horizon. In fact, perhaps it may get worse. Intuitively, we all know that. And there's just a, a, just a uh, for a lot of us, there's a low-grade fear that's, that, that, that's in process. A program of fear that's ongoing. We walked in here today with it. We're uncertain about our employment. We're uncertain about our mortgage. We're uncertain about our kids' future. On and on the list could go. Dear one, when God is in the house, he crowds out fear. That program stops. There's no room for that. Instead, Beyond the, the data, God manifests his peace. That's what we want this place to be, this house to be. A house of prayer for all nations where people drag in whatever program's going in their lives, encounter the glory of the Lord and find that he crowds out all that stuff. John 1, or excuse me, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It also says God is love. When God is present, perfect love, it casts out fear. Isn't that good? If you're a person who came in here with that low-grade tension, that fear in your life, it's our prayer, my prayer, that you will encounter something of the glory of God here that crowds that out. And then you'll meet him and the peace that he brings. Because he is a sustainer through anything that life can chuck your way. He will, when you put your trust in him, you'll be standing after the wind and waves and everything else is blown against your house. That's what Jesus taught. Another thing that some of you may have dragged in here today, and certainly if not um, you, 
uh, today, at some other time, sometimes people will bring, will come to a place like this and there's a program running, a program of despair, discouragement, things that you, you hoped would turn out one way have, have gone another. Things that you anticipated and, and expected have, have uh, dissipated. And uh, it's gotten to the place where your, your hope is at a very low ebb about your marriage, about your future. But when God is present, when, when His glory fills the house, it presses in on that despair and squeezes it all out. It's like a squeegee to just... It's gone. And what he leaves in the wake is a joy that the Bible describes as unspeakable. That means it doesn't make sense. You can't point to anything and say, well, that's why I'm joyful. In fact, it's just the opposite. You know, I really shouldn't have any joy today, but, but I do. Where does that come from? It comes from God. It doesn't come from changing your mindset. It doesn't come from any other self-help stuff. (laughs) It comes from God who presses in on that place of despair and leaves behind his joy. Another thing that's, well, I wanted to, excuse me, I wanted to mention Psalm 16, verse 11. It says, talks about God and says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Yeah. Another thing that sometimes people drag into a place like this is bondage. This may not be the best word because we tend to think of it in some other terms. But I'm, I'm using that word today as those things that seem to have a hold on you and hold you back. You know what it's like? It feels like you just can't ever get any traction in your life. You find yourself repeating the same things. Over and over. Almost like somebody has a lid on your life and you just can't break through. But 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When God is present, when God is in the house... Those bondages get broken. And freedom comes to areas of our lives that... uh, (laughs) How can you describe that? I was talking with someone at the break today and they were just telling... They just... We were talking about something rather mundane, some decoration for the building here. And just all of a sudden, tears come, throat tightens with emotion. And the person I was talking to just could not describe to me the liberty that God has brought to her life. And I know what that's like. Some of you know what that's like. When God is in the house, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Another thing that sometimes people will drag into a place like this is weariness. Just dog tiredness. Life has just, you know, yeah. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> okay, we all ought to do that together, right? Ready? 
Because oh. <laughs> we all know what that's like. The pace of life and the just, just keeping your head above water is like, it takes all the energy you've got. God knows that. But it's not his will, dear one. He's not his will for us to live that way. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So where there's weariness, when God presses in, when his glory is known, he leaves in the wake refreshing. One last one. Finally, sometimes people will come into a place like this and they will bring doubt. Maybe, maybe you showed up today with some doubt. Ah, this whole God business, I, you know, I don't know. Hey, you know, we, every one of us, every single one of us in this room knows what it's like to have doubts. Doubts about God. I love the fact that when Jesus rose from the dead, one of his first stops was to a guy named Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. I don't really consider him a doubter. I call him a kind of a, a seeker. I mean, he just wanted to know what was real. His other disciple buddies had told him, hey, Jesus is alive from the dead. We've seen him. And he goes, what the? Alive from the dead? Come on, give me a break. I'll never believe that unless I see the nails in his hands, the place in his side where they stuck the spear. So what happens? Jesus shows up and he says, come on, Thomas. <laughs> and Jesus did not deride him. Jesus did not ridicule him. Jesus did not put him down. He said, come, come on, check it out. I'm here, I'm here for you. When Jesus encounters us in our doubts and on our uncertainties, it's, it, this is what he always does. He presses in on that. And leaves behind faith. Faith. Jesus said to Thomas, he said, because you... And, and sometimes when we read this or have heard this, we've thought of this as some sort of negative um, declaration on behalf of, of Jesus. It's not at all. It's an acknowledgement of something that he is deeply engaged in and concerned about in each of our lives. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. It's not, he's not upbraiding him. He goes on to say, and blessed will be those who will believe even though they haven't seen. And that includes us. But, but there is something else in that statement. Because you've believed me, or because you've seen me, you have believed and I, be, I, I believe with all my heart that Jesus was saying, I want everyone to see me. Because when you see me, when you experience me, when the divine glory presses in on your life, doubt will not stand. Doubt will not stand. One of the smartest guys in America is a guy named uh, Mark. I won't give you his last name because you could look him up on, on the web and then, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, one of the guys, smartest men in America is a guy named Mark. He's a friend of mine. He lives, uh, well, I won't tell you that either. 
you know, just to engage in a conversation with him, about two words in, I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm lost already, you know. And yet, this is a guy who encountered the presence of the Lord. And in that moment, when the div- divine glory of God pressed in upon his life, all of his scientific predisposition toward doubt and skepticism and all of that evaporated. That doesn't mean he took his sizable intellect and hung it on a hook somewhere, said, I'm a Christian now, I don't think anymore. But it transformed the way he thinks and the way he sees the world. He is one of the people that are sought out for for, uh, trying to deal with some of the most technologically advanced stuff that science is dealing with in this world not just here in the United States, but around the world. But he, I, I, some of you know this, I, I, I mentioned it uh, several months ago. I was talking to him on the phone, he's getting ready to go to Asia for a big you know, conference of these big-brained people. <laughs> and he said, Randy, he said, I'm going to get there and I'm going to give my talks and all that stuff, but I'm going to tell them about God. <laughs> I said, go for it, Mark. <laughs> Whatever it is that you came in here with today, whatever program was running, I don't know about you, but on my phone I have this, this program or this, uh, what do you call it, uh, application killer. So that when something's running, I don't want anymore. I click a button and it stops. The process stops. If there was a program running in your life when you walked in here today, fear, doubt, despair, bondage, Weariness. It's my prayer that the presence of the Lord, something of the presence of the Lord that you have encountered here today will so press in upon that that it will not be able to continue. That program will stop. And what will be left in its wake is the imprint, the impact of the presence of God that changes a life 